Welcome to Get Your World On, the podcast that helps you make sense of today's trends and global news in a way that is fun, understandable, and low in calories. You'll lose weight just listening. And it's promises like that which have led to Get Your World On being voted the most honest podcast for 103 years in a row. I'm your captain, Patrick, orbiting high above the Earth in my spaceship, Chocolate Love. Reporting the news to all creatures in the known universe. So grab a cup of coffee, forget the ungrateful kids, and listen to the latest transmission from the Starship. Get your world on and turn the ignorance off. I was minding my own business in 1863. I was killing lots of people when the aliens abducted me. Trapped in a spaceship and tortured every day, but I still look fly. Drinking down my tango ray. Alien fly girls were down with Pat. Alien overlords weren't down with that. They be doing the Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib, so I made a deal so I could get paid. I started a podcast to teach them stuff. News, global trends, and celebrities and fluff. They say I'll get my freedom for my weary bones as soon as you help me pay my student loans. 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 Word to your mother and your brother and your second cousin. Most Honest Podcast, for 103 years in a row, broadcasting to every planet, star, and moon in the universe, and now broadcasting to planet Earth, the only place in the universe that has not been listening to this podcast for the last 103 years, and a planet that's populated by people that can't make a day trip to their own outer solar system. Well, I'm here, Patrick, on the spaceship Chocolate Love, and I'm here to help you navigate this post-corona world so that you can understand the global trends and the weird developments that are going to shape our next 10 years and what to do about it. On today's episode, will Russia and the USA go to war? How does QAnon work? And where do we head after the 2020 election? Let's begin. What a tense 2020 it has been. Has this not been the most ridiculous, stupid, stressful year ever? Well, it seems like there was constant drama from the first day to the last day. We had that little encounter in the world between the United States and Iran that kicked off the new year where it looked like the two countries were going to uh, head to war. And before long, um, there was a plane crash in Iran that killed a bunch of people. Then Kobe Bryant and his family and some other families. And it's just been nonstop depressing news stories all year. Well, you know, you're exhausted. We're all exhausted. Uh, 
But, you know, 30 years ago, a guy named Jack Goldstone predicted that the U.S. would get a populist, America first leader who would bring a lot of chaos. This Jack Goldstone guy, a scholar, created a model based on how population changes affect states, the elite, and popular behavior. Then 10 years ago, another scholar named Peter Turchin predicted that 2020 and the decade after that would bring a growth in instability and mass uprisings in the U.S. and Western Europe. Now, this has all happened before in history, and the causes tend to be the same. The economic system becomes easy for the wealthy to uh, rig so that they prosper the most. That's the first thing. The second thing is there's a big slowdown in upward mobility for regular people and their children, the next generation. And the third thing that happens over and over is that the wealthy do all that they can do to not pay taxes. And this has happened throughout history, and it opens the door to populist leaders that come out to defend the man who is being left behind economically. It happened in the French Revolution. It happened in the European revolutions of 1848 in various countries. It happened leading up to the U.S. Civil War. It happened in the Bolshevik Revolution in the Soviet Union. And it happened in Mao's uh, Chinese Revolution when the People's Republic of China was established. And true to form, 2020 has not only seen the biggest rich-poor gap in 100 years, It's been so divisive that a virus can kill 200,000 people and literally half the people in the country are not convinced there's a virus. When you get to a situation like that, you can call that extreme polarization. And that kind of polarization is happening in a lot of the world right now. And people during these kind of times of uh, division between the really wealthy and poor and the left behind People during these times begin to take really extreme views and democracy becomes threatened or any kind of economic fairness for society becomes threatened. You start having fights over things like masks, which we're seeing in certain countries in Europe and especially the United States. You see a growth in extreme views, extreme demonization. And uh, you also start to get a population that believes things that are just not true and over-exaggerates threats. For instance, in the United States today, the average person believes that the Muslim population in the USA is 11 times higher than it actually is. In Europe, over the last few years, there has been a fear that Muslims would invade and take over the countries of Europe and have many, many children, and make Europe a Muslim Sharia region. Well, in fact, most European countries have Islamic populations that are about 2 to 4%. Only one country has a population of Muslims that's even at 10%, and that's France. So when countries get into this situation, their ability to have dialogue breaks down. 
Instead of talking about the actual social imbalances and the issues and the eroding social cohesion, they pivot away to issues of race, nationality, and who their enemies are and who's trying to destroy their country. There forms a distrust of leaders and of institutions and particularly of government. And that ends up actually making the crisis last longer because government is the only way to solve such large problems that include so many millions of people. So these countries go through a period of thinking that they can do without government until things get utterly chaotic and the economy goes down the tubes and everything shuts down. This happened in the UK in the 1820s. After the defeat of Napoleon, the people of the newly industrial cities in England, cities like Manchester and Birmingham, were forgotten by the leaders and left behind by the wealthy. The Duke of Wellington and the House of Lords made sure that the workers and the growing population of poor people had no say in anything. Wellington even turned to voter suppression. Authoritarian police practices grew in England and journalists were labeled fake news, demonized and jailed. Wellington had control for a while, but his party lost the election. They still tried to fight against all the reforms that were being ushered in by, by the new group that was ascending in the political ranks. But eventually in 1832, the reform bill was passed, which began to even out the imbalances between England's extreme elite and everyone else. Now, the same thing was happening in other countries in Europe at this very same time, but they didn't pass those reforms. They kept fighting with each other until they got into civil wars that completely changed those nations forever. Bloody revolutions. In the 1930s, the United States faced the same issue as England. The U.S. was in the Great Depression. People were hurting. There was poverty everywhere. The age of the Dust Bowl. And there was a book that came out during that time that warned that the country was ripe for a loud, boisterous, uncouth, tacky leader who would come out and say that he's for the everyman and who would seek total control. Now, that book was called It Can't Happen Here. And the point of that book was that, yes, it can happen here. That even in liberty and freedom-loving societies, like the United States, that are so independent-minded, they can fall into the trap of tyrannical authoritarian leadership, with everyone blindly following the leader away from democracy. People thought it couldn't happen, but it could. Fortunately for the United States, at the very moment of crisis, at the very moment when they could have become like those countries in Europe that completely split apart and had to be reinvented as new countries, 
Franklin Delano Roosevelt came in and he began dealing with the severe imbalance between the rich and the poor. Big public works programs were launched. New infrastructure was created that helped to transform the economy. There was a support in labor unions and an emphasis on the average working person. There was a new emphasis on funding education making sure people were prepared for this new technological era of machines and mechanized jobs. It was a new kind of economy and people who had been living on the farms were not prepared for this high-tech economy that was coming down the pike in the 20s and 30s. Machines instead of farms. Now, when he ushered in these changes, what do you think happened? Well, of course, he was accused of many bad things, but especially communism and socialism. We're becoming communists. We're going to be socialists, everyone said. He introduced something called social security, which was believed to be horrifically socialist, and it would wreck capitalism in the United States. And things got very tense as people began to believe that the USA was turning into the Soviet Union. But FDR's changes slowed the movement toward a violent civil war. He tried to gently reach out to both sides in a diplomatic way to bring down the temperature and move away from heated conversations. That then led to the largest and most prosperous boom time in U.S. economic history. It would be an economic boom that would last all the way into the mid-1970s and in which the United States would hit its all-time wealth peak per person. It would also be the decade that American entrepreneurialism grew to its maximum level. That's right, not the 80s, not the dot-com 2000s, but the 1970s. So it was right at that point of when the new rich-poor divide began to grow that action had to be taken. The divide between the elites and the average working person grew too big. And the disparity between the rich and poor was the at an all-time high in American history. Today, we are in a much worse divide between rich and poor. It is now the largest gap in the history of the world. Today, the top 0.6% of the population are millionaires and own 44% of the world's wealth. Adults with less than $10,000 make up 56.6% of the world's population. That's 10,000 total. They own 2.2% of the total wealth. But the top 5% saw their wealth rise 3.2% annually in the United States on average since 1981. And between 1998 and 2007, the net worth of the richest 5% U.S. families increased by 88%. Double that of the wealth of the top 20 percent families. So that's where we are as a new American president takes the stage. 
Will we go down the road of many 19th century European nations going towards civil war? Or will we make the changes that need to be made at the right point to avoid a critical break? Tune in to this little thing called the 2020s to find out. So who do you think is the most wanted criminal in the world? What kind of person is the most sought after criminal? You know, you would think it would be um, maybe a Mexican uh, drug lord or maybe the dictator of some African country who's embezzled lots of money or who knows, maybe uh, some traffickers, you know, that are smuggling people in on boats and shipping crates from China. I mean, what kind of person would be the world's most evil mastermind? Someone like Osama bin Laden, maybe, a, a, a militant religious person who wants to usher in uh, a great uh, religious war. Well, a little while ago, the world's most wanted man was arrested and put in jail. And he wasn't exactly like you would expect. His name was Paul LaRue. You haven't even heard of him. Yeah, that's because he was just this little millennial guy. Well, he wasn't little. He was um, quite overweight. He was a overweight American millennial guy living quietly in the Philippines. Now, I like the Philippines. In fact, I love the Philippines. Wonderful people. But something that's happened in the Philippines recently is that there are quite a few people who are engaged in very bad things on the internet who base them who have based themselves in the Philippines. And that's because there's not traditionally been much regulation in the Philippines. It's easy to pay people off in the Philippines. And at the time of Paul LaRue, you could get someone murdered for only $100 and 18 cents. Tempting, isn't it? I know, I have all sorts of people flashing through my head at the moment. What was this guy doing? What was the awful thing that Paul LaRue, the overweight millennial, was doing? Well, it's kind of surprising. Have you ever tried to maybe um, renew your subscription or buy some aspirin that you need or some pills on the internet. Well, when you would try and do that on the internet, you would get all sorts of things that would come up like rxdrugstoremeds.com, rxdrugstoreusa.com, rxpainpill.com, rxovernightpharmacy.com, rxpillsonlineusa.com, pillstore.com, prescriptionmedications.usa.com, viagraonlineusa.com, rx4cheap-usa.com, rxcheaperdrugs.com, rxdealsforyou.com, rxfamilyusa, rx.drugsplus, and rxdrugs.com. 
allforyouusa.com. Okay, you've probably even seen websites like that. All of them came from Paul LaRue. Paul LaRue was basically filling subscriptions illegally over the internet by being an online pharmacy, supposedly, and hiring people, pharmacists in the United States, to sign off over the internet on these prescriptions. And then people would go and pick up things they shouldn't be picking up. And with that, Paul LaRue became one of the most famous and wealthy people in the world, minus the famous part. No, in fact, he was able to stay hidden for so long. They could not find this guy. The FBI was doing everything they could to find out who is the person running this this multi-billion dollar um, opium addiction network. And they could not track him for the longest time. But eventually they did, and they caught him and they put him in jail. Well, now there's another mysterious person who's doing a kind of Paul LaRue kind thing, and they are using the internet and started in the Philippines by beginning this thing called QAnon. Now, you remember I told you that periods after pandemics are often filled with lots of conspiracy theories. I said that on episode 1001. Well, Here we go. The QAnon conspiracy source is this supposedly anonymous person who says that they are working for the U.S. government, but they are undercover. They're letting you in on secrets that nobody knows about the evil things that are being plotted by the government. And so QAnon will give little statements on the internet about information, you know, like some Democrat politician or whatever is really a pedophile or some Hollywood actor is a pedophile or they're killing children or whatever, the most extreme kinds of things. And then that gets spread around the world. And usually it works when it connects itself to one particular political party in a country or one particular ideology. You know, you can't kind of do it for everyone. You kind of pick an audience. And interestingly enough, all of Q's theories and writings have been analyzed recently, and they are written at a third to fourth grade level. Yes. So this is for gullible people. I'm sorry if you're a QAnon person, but... uh, This is really poorly written stuff. In fact, it often reads like a really bad novel. So remember that conspiracy theories make powerless people feel like they have valuable insider information. They're really good for the downtrodden because the downtrodden are the people that feel like they're economically being left behind or racially left behind or religiously left behind are looking for some good reason why that's happening. That's not their responsibility. And these kind of conspiracy theories give them 
an enemy that they can identify easily. And then, unfortunately, all those people who feel that way and feel some sense of relief and excitement by getting these secret conspiracy messages, then they form communities. And those communities become people that bond over these false and often very hateful things. And then, of course, the best thing about a conspiracy theory is that it can never be proven wrong. If you say, I don't believe that, then they just say, well, that's because you've been taken in by the Illuminati, or that's because the government got to you. So who is this person that is behind all of this? Well, nobody can say for sure, but there's been a lot of tracing of who this person is. And uh, they've been able to identify uh, James and Ronald Watkins, a father and son team who gained control of the message board HN. And uh, James himself had previously worked from the state of Washington developing internet porn sites for Japanese people, but doing it in the state of Washington to get around Japanese censorship laws. Well, then he moved to the Philippines, and that's when he began posting as the secret queue. And a lot of the stuff he'd been working on there, it did include child pornography. And maybe that's why queue messages always have to do with child pornography things is because it's a projection issue or something. Uh, there were people there in the Philippines that allowed this to happen for a while. And he began to post on October 28th, 2017. And this thing took off. People believed he was a, a guy deep inside the U.S. government in the Department of Energy. He talked about vaccines. He talked about Hollywood celebrities. He talked about satanic rituals. Uh, and uh, he talked about technology being used to control people. Basically all the things, you know, like um, the Illuminati, UFOs, Bill Gates. And yes, I'm not kidding. The idea that some politicians actually have lizard skin underneath their human skin. Well, it's often the case that people that get hooked on QAnon are people that are not that familiar with the internet and how easy it is for people to scam you. And in fact, websites that deal with conspiracy theories are great money makers because people get hooked. They, it's addicting. It's addictive to feel like you're in some very exciting, dramatic information. And you get to talk with other people who feel the same way. And the more people don't understand you, the more you feel a sense of camaraderie with these other people. After all, if everyone's laughing at you about the flat earth thing, well, then, you know, you can turn to these people, your new friends online. Q releases these regular cue drops, which are just enticing pieces of information, and then follows it up with really bad melodramatic writing 
stuff like I could get killed by sharing this. I must go now. And, um, you know, you listen to it and you feel like you're, you're getting these deep dramatic secrets from deep inside the government. You're knowing and identifying the evil forces that are trying to take over the world. Now, unfortunately, one of the things that QAnon has done is he has dropped Christian scriptures. He's dropped Bible scriptures. And so now there's a whole wave of people who uh, were Christians that are getting sucked into QAnon, believing that this is somehow um, connected to God or that it's part of the book of Revelation, that it's describing that world that's about to come to an end and all the terrible things that are going to happen. And so there are a lot of people falling down this rabbit hole. They don't, they've been taught to not trust the media. Remember that truth has been made relative. So anything goes now, now there's not even a framework to decide what's true and not, not even the Bible. Well, that works really well for QAnon that grows their audience and people can make a ton of money off of being their own QAnon YouTube channel or QAnon website. In fact, right now, dear listener, if you really want to make a ton of money in the next couple of years, start a YouTube channel where you talk about weird conspiracies. You'll make a killing. You'll make a ton of money because that is what people want and what people are looking for, at least many people. Now, of course, I hope you uh, get in trouble and go to jail if you do that, but it does work. In fact, it's working so well that now you can buy all sorts of QAnon t-shirts and QAnon hats and QAnon books and other wonderful QAnon memorabilia. That's right. It's a market. It's a moneymaker. QAnon can then be used by foreign governments or political parties who want to use that conspiracy-minded thinking to paint their opponents as part of some dangerous secret cabal. So if you're in France, it'd probably be best to make Q postings, for instance, skew toward Marie Le Pen and her nationalistic party, or in Hungary with Viktor Orban and his nationalistic party, or in Brazil with Bolsonaro. Whatever party is the one that's most hostile to facts, news, media, information, that's the best one to choose. They will quickly go down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theories. This is dangerous, it's idiotic, and it's going to create chaos. Unfortunately, the period in which the internet was solving problems like, you know, helping us get our mail somewhere instantaneously, that didn't last long. The internet now has become about monetizing things and is completely dominated by websites and services who aim to advertise. The internet is all about advertising. It's not about problem solving. It's not about science. It's about Facebook. It's about Google. It's about YouTube. It's about things that make us the product. And that's a real problem because it opens the door 
for it to be abused. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing that people are hooked on these platforms. They go in and get addicted to whatever uh, YouTube channel it is or whatever source it is. And then, of course, those companies make money off of that. And then behind each one of those QAnons or YouTube channels is somebody making a killing off of things like conspiracy theories. And Facebook and companies like that have no incentive to stop these things because it brings so much traffic. If you say, well, we have naughty pictures of the prime minister of the UK doing a satanic ritual, people are going to want to click on that. It works. And so at some point, these tech platforms are going to have to be reined in, but they're mostly monopolies for now. And they're letting this kind of thing get out of hand. Now, QAnon realizes that people are onto them. And so they've started spelling their name differently, QAnon, instead of uh, a capital Q and then A-N-O-N right after it. Now it's Q-C-U-E-A-N-O-N. And that's to get around the increasing censorship. So if you decide to go down that QAnon rabbit hole, just know that you are supporting a decentralized criminal enterprise that sows chaos for profit globally and that distracts from the real people who are actually fighting sex trafficking. We're all suckers for the data that we give away to Facebook and Google for free. But tapping into QAnon doesn't even give you good driving directions or photos of your grandkids. It just makes you complicit in a global criminal enterprise. Okay, horrific, smelly, infected aardvarks. Welcome back. Will Russia and the USA go to war? Remember, we previously talked about whether China and the United States would go to war. And I said that it's highly, highly unlikely that China is really not prepared for war and that their military power is very much overblown. However, I said they would threaten to go to war, that both countries would try and uh, do things that looked hostile and threatening just to intimidate each other, and hopefully there will be no miscalculation. Well, what about Russia? Because the situation between the United States and Russia is even more tense. Is it possible that Russia and the U.S. will go to war? Well, a few years ago, about eight or nine years ago, I went to a city I had never been to. It was a city called Donetsk, Ukraine. And I knew nothing about Donetsk. Of course, I knew a lot about Kiev, and uh, I had never been to the southern eastern part of the Ukraine. So this was a brand new experience. I had no idea what to expect. Well, when the plane landed, I was surprised to see an absolutely beautiful, big, brand new airport. I mean, it was a nice looking, big, beautiful airport. So clearly things were 
going pretty good in Donetsk, and they had actually helped host Euro Cup tournament matches in the stadium there. So, you know, it was good times, boom times. Well, only a couple of months after that trip, that airport was bombed and destroyed by Russia. Russia came in and uh, invaded portions of the Ukraine. They uh, took over um, that section of the country with troops, and they did it because they wanted to make uh, a point and because they view that part of Ukraine as very valuable. Now, they couldn't take the whole thing over. You'll notice that they only took a little piece of it over, or a pretty good-sized piece, but why didn't they take the entire country with their military? Well, because it was too costly, it was too dangerous, and it was not needed. The object of this invasion was to prevent NATO from influencing the Ukraine too much. The east side of Ukraine has always been more pro-Russian. And the Russian forces know that they're no match for NATO and their military. They're badly outnumbered. And the south and southeast of Ukraine is where a lot of military machinery is made for the Russian army. So they took control of that area. They took control of a Ukrainian naval base. They stopped paying rent to the ports there. And now they have a navy that is in the region that is bigger than Turkey's. So it's the big navy in that region. And of course, Ukraine has been considered by the Russians as part of Russia. It was part of the Soviet Union. And the two places have a very close relationship historically. And for the Russians, and certainly for Vladimir Putin, Ukraine is really theirs. Many Russians like to go to the Crimea on vacation. And the Crimea there in the Ukraine is a kind of disputed area. And it's an area that the Russians have very fond memories of and love. It's their vacation spot, particularly in the Soviet days. And so they got it all back in one fell swoop. All of that region with the military equipment and the beaches and the Russian-speaking people, they got it back. Now, this is not the first time recently that they've done something like this. They also invaded the country of Georgia, and now they're currently trying to prevent Belarus from in becoming independent and getting rid of autocracy. But notice that the Russian military's actions tend to be very small. They're very limited. They occur in small countries. And the, the military invasion is not even ever really complete. They just go in for a small portion and then they usually back out or they just keep that small portion. That's because the military's not prepared to do anything more. In fact, a lot of the soldiers that are in the Ukraine are more like mercenaries more than they are army regulars. And they're not entirely sure what they're doing there. And they're not always super competent. Remember when they shot down that Malaysian airliner over Ukraine and everyone died? So 
Russia has some enormous weaknesses. They have military weakness. They have a geography weakness because the country is enormous, something like 11 time zones. And it's a flat, unprotected country. It has a demographics that are one of the worst in the world with a high age of older people and people that die at a young age. Uh, it has a pretty weak economy. And technologically, although Russia was quite sophisticated technologically, they've lost a lot of their best minds who have immigrated to places like the UK and especially the United States. So Russia is very much a weakened power. However, it is still a nuclear power, but even there, a lot of that was disarmed over the years. So what Russia has to do is they have to try and destabilize countries and their enemies and do it more politically than through the military. They use the internet. They use disinformation campaigns. They use compromat. They use um, people that bribe politicians and they buy off politicians. All of these things are much cheaper much safer, and really much more effective ways of sowing chaos. So for instance, funding something like QAnon or becoming a part of the QAnon movement that brings division to Americans, that's a great cheap way of sowing division against your enemies instead of the expensive and difficult for them military incursions and face-offs. So not only has Russia targeted the United States with their troll farms and cyber attacks. Um, but some of those troll farms are even in the United States now to avoid detection. Another thing that the Russian military does is they do flyovers over Alaska. They fly close to American fighter planes, just like in Top Gun. That's actually a, an accurate thing that Top Gun got right, which is that they did often have little uh, encounters and flyovers and intimidating pseudo-dogfights uh, over Alaska in particular. The Russians have put submarines off the coast of Norway and improved their submarines. And Norway doesn't like that. They feel pretty threatened by that. They've also put ships and subs off the coast of England. They have poisoned people on the soil of the UK and killed them. And they have interfered with the United States in the Middle East, with fighting ISIS, and with Syria. So is Russia really the bad guy here? Well, yes, they are. But there's a reason for it. They are because they're trying to discredit democracies, particularly in Western Europe, in Eastern Europe, and in the United States. And they do that primarily, like I said, through buying politicians, disinformation campaigns, uh, the internet, and cyber attacks, cyber warfare. Um, that is what they do. It's all about disruption and causing party divisions in every country. So they support the racists in Germany. They support the nationalists in France. They support the racist party in Italy. 
Um, they support um, the authoritarian leader in Hungary. Uh, just about every country in Europe has some fringe group causing problems, and they are very much funded by the Russians. And the more democracy looks unstable, the better it is for Vladimir Putin, uh, who is an authoritarian leader himself. Now, how did it get so bad? And I'm not going to say, by the way, which party they support in the United States, but you should be able to figure that one out. So why did it get this bad? Well, believe it or not, if we go back to when Vladimir Putin started as the leader of Russia, I think it was New Year's of 2000 when Boris Yeltsin handed over the power to him, Putin actually came in wanting to be friends with the United States. And shortly after he entered into leadership and George W. Bush entered into leadership was the September 11th, 2001 terror attacks. And Russia was one of the first countries to offer assistance to the United States. And they made a really very generous offer. They said they were going to use their counterintelligence to help the United States identify these dangerous Muslim groups that had just attacked America. And of course, they have a lot of intelligence, especially in Islamic countries and especially throughout Central Asia. So this was very generous of them. Another thing that Russia did was they allowed the United States military to set up bases around the borders of Russia in countries, you know, like Uzbekistan and the Stans and Jans, you know, those countries in Central Asia. Uh, they allowed the U.S. military basically to encircle them in order to wage the war on terror with the agreement that when the war on terror was over, they would pull all those troops out. Well, guess what? The United States never has pulled those troops out. We have bases and people in all of those locations, and that has made Russia feel very threatened. The United States kind of reneged on its word, and not only that, the United States kind of moved on to China and moved on to the rest of the world and didn't offer Russia any kind of respect whatsoever. And that is what Putin is trying to get revenge for. He is on a mission to, to bring the U.S. down uh, in a humbling way, in the same way that he felt that the United States brought the Soviet Union down in the Yeltsin early Putin years. So by the time that Obama became president, they were already pretty salty. But once Obama became president, it got worse. So both the George W. Bush administration and the Obama administration um, did not give Russia its due. And so they began in shortly after 210 to begin warfare and information campaigns against Western Europe and the United States, which included funding and supporting Brexit petitions in the UK. Now, if all of that sounds kind of weird and impossible, no, this is something that actually they've done since the 1920s. It's just that they used to do it with pamphlets. Uh, you know, they used to do it with newspapers. They didn't do it with the internet because there was no internet. So trying to divide and conquer your political enemy through misinformation is something that the Russians have done since the 1920s. Now they were just able to do it on a 
high tech level and make it seem like it was coming from those own countries. So, Russia and China now are in a position of wanting to intimidate the United States. They're going to more and more uh, threaten to leave the economic system. They're hoarding gold. They're probably going to want to get off the U.S. dollar and destroy the U.S. dollar as the global currency. Um, And they're going to maybe they'll do military joint exercises if they can pull that off. But most of it will be an attempt to box out the United States, but still, once again, a lot of it will be for show. And so things will probably get tense before they get better. Maybe if Vladimir Putin is stepping down, which the rumors are that he is, and maybe he will have by the time you hear this, things could get better between the US and Russia quickly. But as long as Putin is there, there's going to be a very strong attempt to bring humiliation and embarrassment to the United States and division. So will they work with China? Probably not, because Russia and China have a long history of distrusting each other. They don't like each other. The Chinese occupy a lot of farmland in Siberia. Um, The Chinese do a lot of business with the Russians, but they do it better. Both societies have aging societies, too many old people, which is not really good for waging a war. And of course, both are nuclear powers, as is the United States. So you make the wrong move and you can blow up the entire world. So once again, it's probably going to be a lot of posturing. However, there is something that has already started that we need to keep an eye on, and that is cyber warfare. Cyber attacks are something that Russia and China are very, very good at. They are the lead cyber attacking actors in the world. Russian cyber attackers have hacked a German steel mill. They attacked the country of Georgia. They interfered with a French television network. They interfered with the Polish stock market. And they attacked the United States State Department. Russian military elites have published numerous papers arguing that cyber warfare is now a major component in their arsenal of weapons. Disinformation campaigns, like starting a rumor about a politician in a foreign country, or claiming that they're a pedophile, or getting people on QAnon, are extremely cheap ways to sow chaos in the country of their enemies. They can even have hackers do it from the country they're attacking. So it doesn't look like Russia. It just looks like mischievous teenagers or something. There's no reason the hackers even have to live in Russia, but they get paid and supported by the Russian state. These cyber attackers can also target military sectors, nuclear sectors, and chemical sectors, as well as go after the financial, food, and agricultural sectors or manufacturing sectors of a country. Just in the last couple of weeks, hospitals in the United States during the COVID outbreak were attacked. Their computer terminals were brought down in the middle of a pandemic. So what would a war with Russia look like? Probably if there's going to be one, it's going to be cyber warfare. And how would the United States respond? Well, they would, and probably have already started. In fact, I think the United States has said they have 
started fighting back, they could, for instance, bring down all the Windows XP that the Russians use all throughout the country. Um, and some of you may joke that you don't even need to bring it down. It'll bring down itself if you're an Apple person. They could uh, deface government websites in Russia. They could take down the internet in Russia. The U.S. could interfere with television channels. And if things got really bad, the United States could create cyber bombs where computer code can actually kill adversaries. These are called logic bombs. They could also hack into a dam and cause damage in the Russian countryside. Or they could tap into a nuclear facility or disable air traffic around airports. We are currently already in a digital arms race. And interestingly enough, this is something that Ronald Reagan and his administration foresaw in the 1980s. It was in the 1980s, around 1984, that he signed the Presidential Directive on Computer Security. And today, more than 20 countries have cyber warfare abilities. And between 2004 and 2015, there were 1,300 cyber incidents against the USA. So will there be a war? Probably not. Will things get worse before they get better? Probably. Well, that's it for today's show. Join us next time for more in-depth news analysis from the Starship Chocolate Love. If you like the show, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Get Your World On. If you want to send in a comment, tell me how awesome I am, share your darkest secrets so I can make it public, or you just want to join the conversation, go to GetYourWorldOn.com. You can also subscribe there for easy access to the next episodes. Last, don't forget to make a little donation so my days of indentured servitude can finally end. See you next time. In the meantime, get your world on and get the ignorance out. Peace, love, and chocolate.